You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 13. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Thomas, I have one question for you today, and that is Supreme Court Justice. Well, that's not a question. That's a statement. Okay. What do you think about Supreme Court Justice Kennedy's uh, impending retirement? I'm shocked because he was going to retire next year for the last 10 years. He's kind of like cold fusion. It's always 20 years away. Uh, And after 20 years, it's still 20 years away. I feel like Kennedy's retirement has been that way. And the fact that it's actually here is is kind of mind-blowing. Because I will say, having worked in the pro-life movement for a long time, Kennedy was seen as the obstacle. (laughs) Uh, Every time we had a bill in like the Texas legislature, the primary question we were asking is not, what do the other legislators think? It was not, what does Governor Abbott think? It was always, what does Justice Kennedy think? Because we knew how four of the justices would decide on this bill, and we knew how the other four justices would decide on this bill, and it all came down to Justice Kennedy. And that is a lot of power for some random judge to have over the Texas legislature. So I'm I'm optimistic, actually, uh, about his replacement. I, it's the one thing I, I feel relatively confident that Trump may actually do right uh, is appointing a good judge. I think he did a good job with his uh, previous Gorsuch. appointment. I haven't, heard, yeah, I haven't heard any complaints uh, f- about that uh, appointment. And uh, yeah, I may have to eat all of my bad words about Trump if he appoints another good pro-life justice. Well, and the interesting thing, well, first of all, I want to note. Um, that uh, in between my study breaks, I scroll through Twitter and it was absolutely, yesterday we talked about polarization of our our national community through the lens of Twitter. And it was absolutely hilarious for me because I lean right. Hilarious for me to see the meltdown, absolute meltdown of the leftists about his, uh, the Justice of Kennedy's announcement that he was going to retire. I mean, you want to talk about being angry at a Supreme Court justice I think every single leftist was bashing him, bashing each other, bashing other leftists for not voting for Hillary. I mean, it was it was absolutely crazy how they were melting down. I mean, just melting down. They some of the tweets I saw had all uh, bas- no, they didn't basically say they stated this time next year we're all going to be in death camps. There's not going to be any uh, abortions allowed in the United States. No birth control. Uh, might as well be Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely some jarring news, but the additional interesting fact is, uh, Ruth, uh, uh, Peter Ginberg, she's getting on up there in years too. Um, and you know, there's, there's a potential that president Trump could have three Supreme court nominees, which is pretty incredible. I will say props to Kennedy for retiring. Um, I feel like these justices, they don't want to leave until they die. They're like kings once they get there. And uh, for Kennedy to step down of his own volition, I think is uh, very admirable to him. Um, and for our friends on the left who listen to the show, it is not going to be Saudi Arabia. <laughs> this, uh, the Supreme Court isn't going to shift that much. Um, and in some ways, I'm a little bit sad to lose Kennedy because he has been a bit of a libertarian on a lot of issues regarding the power of the state. And that is one. my one concern is that conservatives often appoint statists 
to the Supreme Court who give more power to the federal government, more power to the presidency, um, who, who lean that way. And Kennedy didn't tend to lean that way in my understanding of the rulings. And my hope is, is that we get somebody who believes in states' rights. Uh, although I'll say Obama appointed uh, some people who didn't uh, approve of states' rights either. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you the, think <laughs> it's uh, it, the Supreme Court is so got, I will say this about the Supreme Court, its role totally changed with Roe v. Wade. Before Roe v. Wade, nobody really knew anything about the Supreme Court, and nobody really cared too much about the Supreme Court. Their rulings didn't have a big impact one way or the other on people's like day-to-day lives. And Roe v. Wade was the first time the Supreme Court kind of started legislating. And suddenly the Supreme Court became a lot more important. And on a lot of the social issues of the day, it's the Supreme Court that really makes the rulings, not the legislators, uh, legislatures or Congress. And it really keeps us from living under our own laws. I'd love for uh, abortion to be like marijuana is becoming, where different states can have different rules. And we can start to see what the impact is of curtailing abortions in a state and see if it's a positive impact. I'm confident it's going to be a positive impact and people are going to see that there's a net benefit to keeping these babies alive. Um, But we're not even able to have that experiment. We're not even able to see because we have this law for the whole country that there's nothing we can do about except wait for the justices to, to, to die or to retire and hope that there's a president at the time and a Congress and a Senate who will approve his replacement. I think it's fascinating how, in in my view, the creators of the Constitution who created the Supreme Court viewed it as something that was supposed to be apolitical. And the justices were supposed to be there simply to interpret the Constitution, the constitutionality of the laws that the legislators passed as the the third uh, branch and the third check and balance of the system. But it, you're right, it absolutely has become uh, almost, I mean, a third legislature. They don't create laws, but they definitely have a power to get rid of them. Um, well, they kind of create laws in the sense that they're able to squint and find things in the Constitution that aren't there. Like there's no, like Roe v. Wade said there's a right to an abortion, to having abortions in the Constitution which is a real stretch when you think that the Constitution states in its own preface that it exists to secure the blessings of liberty on ourselves and on our posterity. (laughs) How do you secure the blessings of liberty on your posterity if you're aborting that very posterity in the womb? It's just, I mean, that, that seems a stretch to me in terms of like coming up with new laws. Well, I mean, that, and that's that was the both the inherent flaw of the original Constitution as well as its genius, uh, because you know we live in a common law system where you have statutory laws and we have laws set by precedent, which is what the court does. Uh, and the Constitution, the, the founding fathers obviously weren't thinking real hard about abortion when they wrote the Constitution. So, um, it's is is it a is it a glitch? Is it a feature? It's it's a little bit of both, in my opinion, and. Um, you know, the Supreme Court's difficult. It's obviously, it has become partisan, um, as any human endeavor will. I think the idea of an apolitical Supreme Court is an intriguing idea, kind of like the ideal of Marxism at its very fundamental level is an intriguing idea. However, uh, 
It completely... There you go with that communist manifesto again. It's poisoning it, your mind, Dustin. It complete. Well, I mean, here, here as, as someone who comes from immigrants, as someone who comes from a very blue-collar labor uh, parentage and lineage, um, you know, it's it's the, the, the eternal struggle of haves versus have-nots. Um, and that's really what communism is. And I reject the, 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 I reject the idea of communism because I reject the idea of state ownership of property, of communal ownership of property. Um, I think especially as a larger scale, you get that that's a human impossibility because I've studied and understand human nature. Humans are very, at, at they're very fundamental. They're very selfish and they're very possessive uh, individuals. And they... I think one of the biggest of the deadliest uh, seven deadly sins is envy. And they are always going to want what other people have. Um, you know, you, for, for those of us with kids, and you're going to see this uh, real shortly here, Thomas, is, you know, you see very early on that the undeveloped animal brain of a two-year-old wants what that two-year-old doesn't have. Uh, so you have something that that two-year-old wants, they're going to want it and they're going to pitch a fit until they get it. And that's, that's even, the animal even brain monkeys. inside there. Even monkeys. This so is a fascinating experiment. You give two monkeys, you give one of them cucumbers and the other one grapes, and the one who's getting cucumbers is going to get very unhappy very quickly. Exactly. <laughs> they, they feel shafted, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's human. It's animal nature. It's human nature. And so getting back to the point, you know, the same reason that the idea of an apolitical Supreme Court won't work, even though it's good in theory, is the same reason that communism will never work, even though it's, I won't say good in theory, It's it's got decency in theory at its heart, and that is supposed to care for the masses you know that's that's the seductive nature of marxism communism is that you know you're supposed to care for everybody and everybody gets a little bit and nobody's getting left behind and that's a beautiful concept in theory but it doesn't work when put into practice because of that evil thing that is human nature so um the supreme court i think will only get more divisive and more political as time rolls on and i think i think what you said about the supreme court not really mattering before i think the the mask. I think the man behind the curtain came, emerged from the curtain after Roe v. Wade, uh, when the Supreme Court was thrust in the spotlight. Okay, yeah, we are political, and we're just gonna we're going to take off the mask. We're gonna stop playing the game. Yeah, we're a political entity, and this is the way it works. Yeah, I think they've been that powerful the whole time. It's just that people haven't been aware of it because that power has been exerted kind of behind the scenes, like you said, it's the, the wizard behind the curtain. Um, I do think, though, that it's been political the whole time. And I actually think that you want it to be political in a sense. Uh, and let me explain what I mean. The only way to truly be unbiased is to not care. Like, if you just truly don't care about the elections in Guatemala, you're not biased for either side. But not caring is its own flaw. <laughs> so in fact, you could say that it, it potentially is worse like better to have somebody who's caring and doing the wrong thing than somebody who's not caring at all, depending on the situation. And sometimes, though, with the government, you really would prefer for them to not care and to not be involved because them caring just uh, muddles the water. So it does depend. But I do think that we want a Supreme Court who cares about the issues, who is very passionate about it and who pushes against itself. And, and in a sense, what the Supreme Court is, is it is a snapshot of political opinion over the last 40 years. So you have some people on the Supreme Court who are appointed by Reagan. You have some people on the court who are appointed by H.W. Bush and then all of the presidents between then and now. And it's and in a sense, Reagan from his grave is still influencing politics because he's still a part of that 
snapshot. I think Soto, I think he appointed Kennedy, uh, and I think he appointed Sotomayor. I'm not sure. Uh, who, but so let's say it's H.W. Bush and all of Reagan's appointees are gone. Like H.W. Bush is not really part of the conversation politically, but he is in the sense that he did appoint the Supreme Court justice. And part of what that does for America that is very unique is it keeps us from changing very quickly. It's really hard for America to change gears. You know, uh, England fired their prime minister and put in a new prime minister when uh, World War II broke out. Because they had this guy who was convinced that Hitler could be their friend. And there was one guy who understood Hitler. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we have the wrong prime minister. They were able to make that change in six days. <laughs> they swapped out the guy that he resigned. And they swapped in Winston Churchill. There's no way we could do that in America. So that's the downside. We can't make quick changes. But the good side is we're very stable. If you're starting a business in America, the, the rules and the laws, when they change, they change very slowly. And I think that is one of our huge advantages is that you know what you're getting when you start a business in America. You know what you're getting when you're starting a family in America and the laws are pretty stable. And part of the reason they're stable is because this uh, Supreme Court is like an anchor on change. And that's exactly right. And it's the inefficiency of the system is the beauty of the system, which is why. You know, when you have like what Obama had in his first term, you had a Democratic controlled Congress and a Democratic president. It worries me because they're going to get legislation done on a ticket that I oppose. The same thing that worries people on the left side today about a Trump presidency and a Republican dominated Congress. The best of both worlds is when the executive branch and the legislative branch are exact opposite parties and nothing gets done. And it's phenomenal. <laughs> Because people start uh, yeah. solving their own problems. And people are like, how is that phenomenal? We need all these problems fixed. There's all these problems in society. And it's no. like, yeah, there are problems in society. But you know what? You can fix them. And when there's no change in the laws, businesses and individuals are able to adapt to those laws in really innovative ways. And often the problems are made to be le are, are lessened. Because people take matters into their own hands. You know, there's a poverty problem in your city and you can't get a law passed to fix it. You know, you think the government can fix the poverty problem? Well, and you realize, oh, my goodness, there's gridlock. It'll never get passed. Well, suddenly you start thinking of other solutions like, well, maybe I should start working with local churches. Maybe I should start my own nonprofit to deal with this problem myself. And suddenly you're no longer a helpless peasant. You're actually a citizen. And one of the differences between citizens and peasants is that citizens solve their own problems and they help their neighbors solve their problems without going to government for every single a problem in their life. And so I think there is a beauty in inaction. That's not to say that the government doesn't need to make changes and you know laws don't need to be passed, but I would much prefer to live in a state like Texas where the legislature only meets every other year than a state like California where the legislature passes more laws every year in California than the Congress passes every year in Washington DC. Oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. There's no way to know what the law is if it's changing that rapidly. I mean, that's just an inherently unstable system, in my opinion. And that's why it, it baffles me, or it actually doesn't baffle me at all. You wonder why businesses are fleeing California. They are fleeing California. And it's because the cost of compliance and the cost of, of, of maintaining regulation is absolutely insane. And the only businesses who can stay there are extremely wealthy ones that uh, that can actually afford the cost of compliance. The other thing about California, and this is a bit of a change of subject, but it, it's a good capture of this, is that everyone is in everyone else's business 
all the time, it seems. So you have these, you know, um, barbecue Betty and permit Patty, uh, incidences and, and permit or barbecue Betty is a perfect example. I don't know if you followed this, but there was this lady who I'm didn't not, like I'm that not. these African American family or this collection of African Americans were barbecuing in a public park. And she spent two hours on the phone, like calling 911, trying to get them kicked out because it was a charcoal grill. And she thought it was against the rules to have a charcoal grill when the Internet kind of believes that she didn't want them there because they were barbecuing while black and she was racist. And so she's she's being you know obnoxious and pre- presumably racist and she's being in their business. And in quintessential California fashion, not only do you have one busybody getting in other people's business and making their lives miserable, but then you have a second busybody who comes in and gets into that lady's business and her, it puts a camera in her face for 30 minutes and films her and like argues with her. And so you have like one social justice warrior with another social justice warrior on different issues of social justice, like yelling at each other and getting each other's business. And it's like, yeah, it's wrong that this lady is trying to get these people kicked out because they're barbecuing because she's racist. Like, I'm totally against that. And this whole like, oh, lots and lots of rules thing. I'm, I'm against that, too. And that's obnoxious. But the way this other lady was like shoving a camera in her face was also obnoxious. And it's like, how are we solving this problem of a being obnoxious by being more obnoxious? <laughs> it's like, how about we just don't mind each other's business? <laughs> how about we just let other people live their lives and be okay if someone's selling water in front of their house without a permit? Like, why, why not just like, I don't know, take a deep breath and not be in, trying to control everyone around you quite so much. Unfortunately, when you live in a city, uh, you're constantly bumping elbows with people. And that's part of the problem uh, is that and I think that's why people who flocked. I've been thinking a lot about this. I think that's why people who flock to cities, they like more government because government puts definitive rules on what you can say and cannot do. and makes it easier uh, to live in a city because you don't have a lot of space in which to operate. So in a big city, you need more police, you need more fire, you need more EMS, you need more services, you need more social workers because you, that, those are the people that work, those are the people that work to facilitate people living in close quarters together every single day. And, uh, as a former police officer, Thomas, I can tell you that people are jerks. Uh, people can be <laughs> so jerks. To be in the police to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it, it really brought the point home. You know, people can be people. Individuals can be beautiful people. But by and large, a mob is an ugly, ugly thing, um, especially an intoxicated mob. But that's a story for another time. Um, but yeah, so you, I mean, that's that's why a lot of times you have cities that are so blue is because you need the government to tell you how to live so close to other people. I, that's that's kind of my uh, that's my you know, anecdotal sociology. So, in, so in a country area like where I live, you don't need that because you have plenty of space. So I agree that people in the city are longing for government to kind of tell them what the rules are. But I don't know if I agree that you need that because there is one beautiful city or marginally acceptably looking city in the country that doesn't have any of those rules. And yet the people there are prospering. The best city, Houston, there are no zoning laws in Houston. There's no government saying what you can and cannot do with your land. Not to say that there's no laws in Houston, but there's so much freedom. And you know what? Houston is the very best city in the nation to be poor in. The poor people in Houston have a higher quality of life than in any other city in the country because they have the greatest amount of freedom. They have the greatest amount of rich people telling the government to tell poor people 
what they can and cannot do, right? Because the poorer you are, the less voice you have in government. And so the more rules there are, and the more those rules are enforced, the more it disproportionately hurts the poor. So kind of a catch-all um, rule of thumb when it comes to governmental laws. And Houston has this actual laid-back, actual freedom concept, and people there are prospering. And sure, it's not as pretty as other places, but the city is built on a swamp. How pretty like, could it be? And they've made the best of what they have. <laughs> Being in a the swamp, they're prospering, and they're flourishing, and people who move to Houston stay in Houston. You don't see people longing to leave Houston. You hear them talking a big game. Like people from Houston are like, oh, Houston's the worst. And then you're like, oh, okay, so when are you moving to Austin? They're like, oh, I wouldn't move to Austin. There's not enough economic opportunity there. Oh, things are too expensive there because your zoning laws are so crazy. And, you know, the people who go tend to stay and they tend to be content and happy. And I think that that's beautiful. And I, I wish that more cities embrace that concept of freedom and more citizens were okay with living at peace with each other. And the other thing about Houston that's so cool is it's the most diverse city in America. There are more like populations of more ethnicities there than anywhere else. I think they're on par with New York. The numbers are different in terms of amount, but I don't think they're different in as much in terms of percentages. And, you know, pe people from all over the world and with ancestries of all over the world, are living at peace with each other. And that is the American dream. And you don't need a lot of laws telling people how and what they can and cannot do with their property in order to do that. That's an interesting point, Thomas. I am not overly familiar with the sociology or the politics of Houston. So I'm going to, obviously, I'm going to take all your word for it on that one, as I usually do when you say anything anyway. But um, I find that to be very intriguing. I'm going to read more up on that one. Um, yeah, I knew they didn't have any zoning laws, so I knew that you know you could have Section 8 housing next to a $50 million mansion, um, and I know that uh, people who have fled Houston, and I do know people who have fled Houston, uh, people who have fled Houston do complain about that. Um, and then they move to cities like Austin, where you have insane zoning laws, and it's only about to get worse uh, with, your, with your little Code Next thing going on down there. Um, you have insane zoning laws, that protect people's property, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's like I said before, it's telling people how to live amongst each other. So uh, interesting point about Houston. Um, I don't know enough about the politics to really, to really say anything more about it. I, I would love to see a second city dezone the entire city to see if Houston is a fluke. Because I suspect, uh, there's, I will say, there's a huge correlation between the amount of zoning laws and affordable housing. In fact, the left is actually starting to realize this. There's been some interesting discussions amongst academics on the left that maybe they've been approaching affordable housing all wrong. Because ah. if you look if you look at cities where they they have complete control like San Francisco, the affordable housing problem is worse than it is anywhere else. And it's not because evil Republicans are getting in there and making the law super terrible. There are no evil Republicans in San Francisco. They're like <laughs> All five are, Republicans are persecuted by Doherty, keeping their heads down, like, you know, huddling and like rushing from place to place, hoping they're not going to be found. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is, is that they're trying to use state control to fix a problem that's better fixed with freedom. And they're start. I think they're starting to realize that. And they're starting to consider maybe we should relax some of these zoning laws and let you know, the moderately poor people, obviously, uh, 
getting rid of zoning is not going to help the homeless, right? There's a certain amount of, of poverty where it's not really going to help you. But there is a kind of poverty uh, where you have a job, but it's not a good job, where having freedom to kind of make your own decisions and make sense. Now, it, it would make sense not for them to get rid of all zoning laws. I think having like safety laws, like you have to use high quality concrete because, you know, we're in an earthquake zone. Like that makes sense, right? I don't think they necessarily want to go totally crazy. But right now, like you're so restricted in what you can and cannot do there that no one's building any new housing. <laughs> People are moving to the town and no one's building housing. And so the inevitable outcome when you increase demand without increasing supply is that prices are going to increase. And that really hurts the poor, right? Somebody who's working in Google can pay an extra $50,000 a year for their house. Uh, and yeah, I said $50,000 a year. San Francisco's crazy, but Google pays insane amounts of money. Um, but you can't if you're working at Starbucks or if you're working at some you know, fast food restaurant. So Thomas, what you're saying is, is that government makes things inefficient, makes markets inefficient, and that if the market were allowed to decide that there was a need and a demand for housing, that that need and demand would be met? So I know you're like becoming a hippie with like reading the Communist Manifesto and, you know, wearing... I, I, I don't understand what you're saying, Thomas. Like, that's that's too much. like give peace a chance. I just want to say, give freedom a chance. You know, just try it. You might find that letting markets work and freedom happen might actually solve your problems without the government coming in. That's all I'm saying. Give freedom a chance. Thomas, now you're just being ridiculous. <laughs> government is the solution to all of our problems. We need government intervention in all aspects of our lives right now. As a matter of fact, me living out in the county areas where I have no zoning restrictions and no codes that I have to abide by with the exception of a septic system, I find that I am too free, that my options are too open, and I am in desperate need of somebody to come in here and tell me how to live my life. <laughs> well, one thing that uh, all of you are free to do, if you so choose, is leave us a comment. We would love to know what you think. What do you think about Justice Kennedy uh, stepping down? Is uh, him being replaced going to be a good thing or a bad thing? And what are your thoughts on California busybodies and zoning uh, and the city of Houston? Uh, perhaps a controversial topic all on its own. <laughs> Let us know. You can uh, give us your thoughts at libertybuzzard.com forward slash 13. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs>